You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. The following on podcast is proudly sponsored by Barbados Tourism. Before we kick off the show, I just wanted to take a moment to remind you that the ICC Men's Cricket T20 World Cup Final is taking place in Barbados this summer. This, by default, gives all of my fellow cricket fanatics the perfect excuse to go and book a holiday to Barbados in June and experience firsthand the euphoric atmosphere at the Kensington Oval, the cricket mecca of the Caribbean. If the cricket alone isn't enough to tempt you, then let me be the one to remind you that a trip to Barbados can also include leisurely strolls along the breathtaking coastline, mouth-watering flavours of the world-class Bayesian cuisine, and, of course, plenty of rum. Head to visitbarbados.org forward slash cricket today to book the trip of a lifetime to Barbados, the best place to be a cricket fan. Welcome to the Cricket Collective on TalkSport 2 with me, Neil Manthorpe. Today's episode features a special hour-long interview with one of the all-time greats of South African cricket. He has over 400 test wickets to his name and has taken 26 five-wicket hauls on the biggest stage. And he's been a nightmare for international batsmen all over the world. My guest today is the great South African fast bowler, Dale Stane. Before we finish, stop recording and then we'll say save this video. So you've got it saved. I really am going to get you a producer's fee, you know. <laughs> <laughs> All right. He's got him. That's just what South Africa wanted. It's a first test wicket for Dale Stane. He's loving every moment of that. Knocked him over. Great delivery here by Dale Stein. Got it! Bowling that's a big wicket. Very big wicket. Stein breaks through. Straight through him. Dale Stein continues to get wickets. Where's got him? That's the end of the England innings. Dale Stein makes the final breakthrough. Well, he's bowled at the stumps and he's hit off stuff. Breakthrough for South Africa. Top delivery by Dale Stein. Got him! Ends it with a beauty. Well, Dale, thank you so much uh, for your time. Thanks for joining us here on the Cricket Collective. Um, before we get underway, I won't bother boring the listeners with the description of, of my study, um, but you're in a far, far more attractive part of the world. Um, in in Komaki, which is surfer's paradise, just describe the view um, what you're looking at now before we start the interview. I'm quite fortunate that I have got a house on the beach in Komiki. So this morning I was sitting on the deck looking out at the ocean. Literally, I'm on the ocean. 
um, I walk out of the yard and walk 10, 15 meters and I'm on, the, I'm on the sand, which is quite nice. But right now I'm in the backyard. I'm listening to the waves and I'm sitting here at the back on the veranda throwing the ball for my dog. I think it's a, it's a lovely, there's a lovely symbolism to, to your journey in life and your journey as a cricketer um, because you, you were born and raised in, in Palaboa which is uh, it's just like the sort of the epicenter of non-cricketing South Africa. And you've ended up with this amazing career. Um, and you must have told the story a hundred times. But, but how, how did you get from Palabora to, to where, you, where you are? Yeah, it's very interesting, actually. Um, just reading the list of things that you sent me on that email earlier and just thinking, when did I do that stuff? That was like, <laughs> how did that even happen, you know? Yeah, it does make you think a little bit. But yeah, I mean, uh, I'm, I moved to Pretoria um, when I was about 20 and joined the Titans Cricket Academy. And then kind of from there, I was fortunate enough that it was roughly around the same time that the 2003 Cricket World Cup was happening. So I was bouncing around from being a net bowler to being a change room attendant and then just got got seen. And yeah, next thing you know, I was offered a Titans contract and that's kind of where it it kind of just took off. There's a popular perception, certainly in England, that the moment you arrived in the, in, on the international scene was that ball with which you bowled Michael Vaughan. Oh, beautifully bowled. Dale Stain has got exactly what he wants. That was an absolute peach, wasn't it? Does that, does that still a highlight for you? Yes, I was on debut. I think it's probably going to go down as my second favourite wicket because... Um, well, the one that I'll always remember, I guess one day when I'm sitting on my porch and I'm like 80 years old and someone says to me, can you remember any of your test wickets? I'll probably always remember that one because it's the one that is most highlighted in my career. It's like, you know, it was, I think, my third wicket. But it just kind of set the scene for what's to come, what, what potential there is, you know. It's not one, it's not like the wicket, the previous wickets that were like, maybe caught at fine leg or for short ball or something like that. It was, it was a genuinely great ball, you know? So yeah, I, I kind of will be remembered and I get reminded about it pretty much daily. Yeah. And so you should, I mean, you know, there were a few series that I, I saw in which Mutai Miralitha in three test matches, you know, he took sort of 25 wickets, but, but, but the series against New Zealand in 2007, you know, there, there were only 40 wickets to take in the two test matches and you took half of them 20 <laughs> wickets at at nine you know uh, 10 for 93 and 10 for 91 i know it wasn't a very strong new zealand team but but i mean if i mean did you feel like a one-man bowling attack tough to kind of wrap my brain back around that period it was so long ago but um one thing i do remember about that series was the first test was played at the wanderers and I remember the day before running in at training, I was with Vinnie Barnes um, and I was bowling to Pouch and I was kind of all over the place. I wasn't really, in some regard, I was almost hitting the side net. I wasn't, I wasn't quite, quite nailing it. And I remember Pouch just walking out the net and walking up to me. And um, one, of the, one of the best things about Pouch was that he was my keeper. So we played fetch or, or catch, not fetch. I'm thinking fetch with my dog. We played catch a lot, you know, and when I felt like I was going through a difficult period with the ball, he would run over to me and he'd always say to me, just get the ball through to me just a little bit. Let's just play catch a little bit. Let's just play catch. And um, I could 
slowly build like some confidence in in getting the ball into the right area. And in that net, the day before, he ran, he came up, came out of the net, he came over to me and he just said to me, look, I think you're running in with too much of an angle. And I think you need to straighten your run up and it might, it might just straighten up your lines a little bit. And I did it. And I think for like the next five or 10 minutes in that net, Bouch didn't lay bat on ball and I probably cleaned him up a couple times. And whether it was him just working tricks, playing mind games with me and missing straight balls, I don't know. But I remember walking out the next day in the game and him coming over to me and just saying, just remember to run in a little bit straighter. And like, I don't know where the ball just came out like perfectly. The alignment was right. And I got the ball to talk. And when you're doing that in conditions that favor fast bowling at 140, 145 k's an hour, you're going to be pretty threatening, you know? <laughs> So that series, you were, you, I mean, it pretty much clicked all the time. You know, there, there weren't particularly devastating spells. It looked like you could take a wicket virtually with every ball in every spell. But there were times when it did really, really click. And the, the 7 for, for 51 is your career best against India in Nagpur. He's out at seven wickets for Dale Steyn. India all out, 233. His best figures ever. But what I remember about that is that India were going quite well. They were 192 for three. And suddenly you bowled them out for 230. I mean, what is that? Is that the condition of the ball or is it a rhythm thing? Because suddenly, you know, you went from hitting the middle of all their bats to, to just cleaning them up. Yeah, well, I'm probably going to give away, people probably give me a lot more credit than I'm probably due. But, um, you know, I can remember two test matches, actually. One test match in Chennai where it was the first test in Chennai where Sawag made 300. And I, I can remember also that I just couldn't pick up a wicket. I, couldn't, I did everything I could and I could not pick up a wicket and they changed the ball. Something happened to the ball, the, the, the seam had split or something, they changed the ball. And Graham gave me the ball straight away and he was like, look, it's a change ball slightly harder. Let's see if you can do something. And I remember getting Donny out, bounced him, he gloved it, got caught. And then it just started to reverse a little bit. And I picked up, ended up picking up four in like 10 or 15 minutes. Um, and pretty much the same thing happened in Nagpur. The, the game was kind of drifting away from us. India were in a good position. Uh, the new ball did do a little bit. Um, I must be honest, it did swing a little bit. That morning, it may have been a little bit overcast. I can't remember. But if you were going to have something out of that pitch, it was going to be with the brand new swinging ball. And I got Murali Vijay with one that, that jagged back in pretty crafty kind of bowling and, and I got Sachin with one that swung away and I nicked him off. Um, those are two good balls with, with a brand new cricket ball. But then they went through that like little phase where nothing was going on. They changed the ball. And I think it was like the second ball I ran and this thing just ducked in big time. I didn't deliberately mean for it to happen. I don't think the batter knew it was going to happen. And he fell over and just clipped it straight to midwicket at Ashwell Prince court. And once I saw that ball go, I knew, oh, I'm in, yeah, I'm in, I'm in with a chance. And then the next four wickets just happened like this. Bang, 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 bang. The ball was reversing. And when the ball's reversing like that, both ways, you can ask any batter. Best batsman in the world is going to struggle. So, yeah, um, got it in the right place. And I was able to pick up seven very, very quickly uh, through a ball change. Uh, so sometimes <laughs> it's not always the bowler, you know. <laughs> You know, um, one of my favourite days 
Uh, when you retired from Test cricket, I remember telling this story about half a dozen times on on the day that you announced your retirement. But but it still makes me smile just saying the words six for eight. You took <laughs> six for eight. That doesn't happen beyond under elevens. Yeah, I was that was love. I love that that ball was like I had it like on a string. It was just doing everything I wanted to, and actually like the last ball of of the of my spell I Mispo was batting and I got greedy and I was like oh I'm gonna clean him up here and my wrist just broke a little bit and it didn't swing as much and he got like a glove that went down the leg side very nearly caught by the keeper but nowhere near the keeper actually it would have probably been a, like a, a leg slip you know would have been a catch so you know had I not gotten greedy I could have very easily ended up with six for four <laughs> <So>. <laughs> It was it was swinging and so so late, you know. It was it was it was like your classic delivery, but it was like a highlights package. Have you ever been more in control than you were that day? Uh, you know, I love if I ever want to get like like just get a little bit of confidence. The, the thing for me, like I'm, I do a lot of my bowling comes from muscle memory. Really, I've got a very clean and an easy action, so I've never really struggled with uh, that kind of stuff. Maybe every now and then, just realign realign the the direction in which i'm running in or where i'm landing on the crease but for the most time i'm i'm living off just like past memories and i i often watch that spell um just to try and get that feeling back of how easy it was you know because it just looks when i watch it it just it's like an out of body experience and you're able to watch and it just looks so easy and so in control I mean, that day was just from ball one, literally just came out the hand perfectly. And I, I really enjoy bowling at the Wanderers. It's one of my favorite places to bowl from the golf course end. It seems to always just be a little bit of something. Um, even when it's dead flat, there's always just out of nowhere, just something happens. It's a great place to, to be a fast bowler. Still to come on the Cricket Collective, find out why Dale Steyn quickly learned not to annoy the captain of South Africa. I ran him out of his gloves forgot his gum they made me sit outside and watch the whole innings from like where the where the boundary rope was it was freezing cold you're listening to the cricket collective on talk sport 2 bottom right through his defense he's left that alone so wicket now for stain as well locked him over straight away what a delivery Dale Stead is on a roll. Got him! Yeah, ripper! And deserves a five-wicket bag as Dale Stein. Another one bites the dust. I'll take you back to your great mate Jacques Callis's last test match against India again um, at Kingsmead. So, so India uh, were 199 for two. They're batting first. You've drawn the first test at the Wanderers. Famous, famous draw, which I'm going to get you to talk about in a moment. We'll go back to that in a moment. But, but back. So here we are. It's a two-test series at Kingsmead. It's Jacques Callis's last test match. India are 320 for five. You've struggled to take the first two wickets, and then suddenly, through what looked like sheer bloody-minded determination for Jacques, uh, they've gone from 320 for five to 334 all out. And you've taken six for a hundred. I mean, that was just was that that was just willpower, wasn't it? I mean, you were just willing everybody out. Uh, you mentioned that the the previous test, um, I'd taken a bit of 
bit of heat actually because um, there was two big things that happened in that test match personally uh, for myself was that I took the first wicket of that test match. I got Chika Darwin out with a short ball, caught fine leg. And then on what seemed to be like a good Wanderers track where it moved around a little bit and everything like that, I never got another wicket for the rest of the test match. I never got one, went past the bat a million times. India actually done some pretty good homework. Um, they were leaving the ball really well on length. And um, if there was anything outside the R line, they kind of just left it. And if it was on the stumps, they, they played it really well. So they, they had batted really nicely and, and worked us out quite nicely. And then the other thing that happened in that test is that Faf and AB got us into a position where we could have won it. And myself and Vernon were, ended up needing to score a couple of runs to win the test and decided that the best decision was to actually close up shop and ended up needing like six runs or something stupid like that. You were chasing 458, which would have smashed the world record. And then suddenly, was there an order? Was it your decision? Because there was Imran Tahir and an injured Mornay Morkel to come. So you could have actually yeah. lost the test as well. You were seven down. Yeah. So we, we, we didn't have much time. Um, it was starting to get a little bit like dark and the umpires were pressing us. Because now at this point, there's two guys out there that we're not known for our batting, although Vern can bat. And we, did, we, we needed to make a decision for the team. And I'm not calling for gloves. And the umpire's like, bro, you can't call for gloves. You've only been here for two minutes, you know. And I'm trying <laughs> to get some orders from, from the balcony into what we should do. So Vernon and myself decided that maybe the best thing to do was to kind of close up shop and not risk losing a test match with only one test match to go and then having to draw a series, having to go to Durban winning that test just to draw the series. So we decided that the best thing to do was to close up shop and, uh, and draw that test and go level into Durban and try and win in Durban to win the series. It was a tough decision too, because at the time, Dhoni, I think, was captain and uh, he had brought his quicks back on and he had spread the field and got his quicks to bowl everything from waist to short bounces. And the only way to kind of score runs was to, was to play the pool. Now, I'm batting at 9 and 10. I'm definitely not playing the pool as often as I'd like to. So I figured, well, if this is going to happen, chances are I'm probably going to get out, put Mornay in a position where he could get out and Emmy, and then lose the test. So, yeah, so we went to Durban 0-0. And um, I had a pretty big point to prove when I got into Durban because I, I'd taken some heat, you know, for not taking any wickets and then deciding to, to close up shop instead of going for the win. Ellis is on 99. They'll come back for two, and that's the 100. Fantastic innings, Jack Callis. And then Jacques scores 100. I mean, how good was Jacques Callis? How, how good must you be to score 100 in your last test match you went on of course to to win the test and and um and it was a perfect send-off for Jacques but uh, staggering isn't he what is he the greatest cricketer you've played with he's by far the greatest cricketer I've ever played with you can catch anything he he bowls he scores hundreds you can't find a more complete cricketer than Jacques Callis you know he's just he doesn't moan, you know, he just kind of stands there, um, sits there in his, in his spot in the dressing room, offers great assistance and, and words of, of advice when, when needed. And then whatever the captain decides, he goes with it uh, with, a, with a strong mindset. And he's, he's the ultimate professional. You know, he'll, he'll get out first ball 
and he'd walk back to where he sits. He'd sit down, take, take his bat and his gloves or whatever, and he'd just start cleaning his bat again, fixing his shoes, where some of us would walk in there, throw our stuff all over the place, you know, and go wild. He was, he was, actually, he was the perfect, perfect professional. Um, probably my favorite, favorite cricketer. The high's not too high and the low's not too low. Um, it's, a, it's a bit of a role model for life, really, isn't it? He wasn't a great overreactor. <laughs> No, no, he didn't get too excited. Although I did see him once. Um, I remember we were playing against the West Indies in, in Cape Town and um, one of the bowlers was, was giving him some, some heat when he was batting. I can't remember who it was, one of, the, one of the West Indian quicks. And Woogie came on bowl and he cranked it up. It's the fastest I've ever seen him bowl. And he, he got a little, little lippy there too because he was, you know, he was backed by a heavy ball. Um, one of the few times I've seen some emotion come out of, out of uh, Jock. Uh, <laughs> but for the most part, you know, just this kind of silent warrior, you know. We're going to talk about 2008 in a moment, those six months, where, you know, when you went to England and, 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 and won that series and then went to Australia and became the first South African team ever to win a test series in Australia. But before, before we go there, uh, I want to ask you, what's the best wicketless spell you ever bowled? Um, test matches, there was, there's been a couple, uh, I think I bowled one session to Sachin where I'm almost certain I nicked him off and the umpire gave it not out and we hardly gave any of a, any kind of an appeal in Cape Town and he managed to bat through and score a pretty big knock. And then another one in Cape Town against England, I bowled to Ian Bell, I think, and, um, was it Collingwood? Maybe Collingwood? Jeez, they just closed up shop. Couldn't get them out. I felt like if we got a wicket there, we would have run through them, especially it was the second new ball. And then Graham Onions, Bunny Onions, came in to bat at number 11 and blocked out. And it was a, just a famous draw. That was a spell where I um, probably bowled beautifully and just didn't pick up a wicket. And, you know, and another player that I've bowled well to as an opening batter is Rohit Sharma. Whether it be 2020 or one-day cricket, I bowled beautifully to him and just haven't managed to get him out either. I think he's played and missed at about 80% of the balls that I've ever bowled to him and still hasn't nicked one. So it's not like he's caned me all over the ground or anything like that. I just haven't been able to get him out. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned Ian Bell there. Of course, he scored 199 in that first test of the 2008 series at Lords, And that was a famous draw as well with uh, the top three, Graham Smith, Neil McKenzie and Hashim Amla all scoring hundreds. And then, and then, you won at Headingley by 10 wickets after A.B. de Villiers scored 170 and Ashwell Prince also scored 100. And so you went to Edgebaston. And, of course, you were 12th man because you, you'd broken a finger, I recall. I don't remember where because you played in the first two test matches. But that, that win at Edgebaston, when Graham Smith made the unbeaten 154, that still gives me goosebumps. The occasion, the... the yeah, obviously, obviously gives you goosebumps as well. You're shaking your head. Oh, amazing. Never seen somebody more in the zone. People talk about the zone. And I've, I mean, I've felt it before. I've, I've felt like I've been there, you know. And I don't quite know, like, what it looks like when I'm in the zone. Like, you know, whether I'm talking to anybody or whatever it was. But that was a day that I was able to see somebody actually, like, be in the zone. And Graham... As a, as a leader, he'd walk into the dressing room and we would all kind of like gather around him and be like, well, what's the plan? You know, what are we doing? 
and he was just so calm. He was so relaxed. It was like he was, it was like he was on drugs or something like that. You know, he was just like, he didn't look himself. You know, he was just super chilled, super relaxed. And he kept everyone so calm. And it, especially at a ground like Edgbaston, where the old dressing rooms used to be under the like pavilion. So it sound like you could just hear the people like banging above your head like this. And when Plintoff was running in and bowling those Yorkers where the guys couldn't see it out of the side screen, I was 12th man and I was myself. It was just the like craziest noise you've ever heard. And probably as close as it would come to feeling like you were playing in an ashes and, you know, English crowd, they, they, they can get loud, um, especially when they're on. And, and, and Graham was just able to kind of like just, completely put the 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 blinds on and not hear it and not see it and just battered like like he was playing at schoolboy level you know you know um chewing gum to to graham was his gum was like kryptonite was to to superman and and he called for new gloves during that 154 i think it was just after he got to 100 you know when the tension was at its greatest and new gloves meant new gloves, but also fresh gum. And you not being a very uh, good 12th man because you didn't do it very often. You forgot his gum, didn't you, at one point? <laughs> I did. I, I ran him out of his gloves, forgot his gum. Got, I think he popped out of his zone there for a second, gave me the death stare, realized quickly what I needed to, to <laughs> fix, bolted off. And um, my punishment, because I was... 12th man with, I can't remember who else was 12th man, but they made me sit outside and watch the whole innings from like where the, the, where the boundary rope was. It was freezing cold. And I was sitting there and I was just watching this guy bat. And if he so much as just blinked in my direction, I stood up waving my hand, like, what do you need? What is it that I can get you? <laughs> so yeah, not, not the world's best 12th man. And, um, you learn that lesson once, you know, especially when it's the captain of the South African cricket. <laughs> <laughs> is that is that one of or or the best test innings that that you saw? Oh, yeah, um, Hash's three hundred was something special. Well, it's three hundred and three. Shinamla, well played. Enjoy this moment. There's been some phenomenal hundreds. JP's hundred at MCG. AB made um, one or two hundreds against India. Got a massive hit, the biggest six I've ever seen in my life. He hit Harbour John so far. It was massive. Then he scored another big hundred. Is, is that his hundred? Yes, it is. What a hundred from Amy de Villiers. And I think he could have he could have made 300 that day in Abu Dhabi. But being the team man that he was, he was like, I think once he had broken the South African record, I think it was, was it him or someone? He got close. Uh, he was like, that's it, guys. We need to bowl these guys out. I'm out of here. So, you know, it just showed what a good team man he was too. But, wow, our guys have scored some good hundreds. Hash scoring 100 uh, with, was it Graham and Avi in Perth? 97 to De Villiers. He goes again. Does he get it away? He's got at least three. It'll be a boundary and a test match 100. Well, they scored it like 10 and over for, for a session. I mean, the guys just didn't know where to bolt them. And they made it look so easy. They were just running the ball down the third man, and then they would put a third man in, and then he'd walk across and he'd flick him down. It looked like he was playing one-day cricket. You know, it was just 
with, in, with a red ball. Still to come on the Cricket Collective on TalkSport 2, Dale Stane reveals why he regrets missing out on scoring a test century. When I got out, I thought, I was four hits away from 100. And I'm like, I could back myself to hit that guy for four sixes. <laughs> what was I doing? Why was I blocking it? This is the Cricket Collective on TalkSport 2 with the Institute of Cricket. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. The following on podcast is proudly sponsored by Barbados Tourism. If your passion for travel is on par with your passion for cricket, then I have some excellent news. The ICC Men's Cricket T20 World Cup Final is being hosted in Barbados this June, which makes it the perfect destination for your summer holidays this year. To make the most of your trip, you can also experience eight matches from the series in Barbados, including... England against Scotland and England against Australia. In under a month's time, you could be spending your days exploring the vibrant streets of Bridgetown, drinking rum in the sunshine and experiencing exotic Bayesian delicacies. In the culinary capital of the Caribbean, there truly is something for everyone. There's no need to wait a second longer. Head to visitbarbados.org forward slash cricket today to book the trip of a lifetime to Barbados, truly the best place to be a cricket fan. Gets it through. Will this be the three? That will do it. What a famous victory that is for South Africa. And South Africa have chased down 4 1 4. We went to Australia, so a dozen South African teams had been going to Australia for a century. None of them had won a series. And then you chased down 414 in the first test match in Perth. 414. And you win before lunch on the fifth day. Uh, it just, you know, you have to say it again, don't you? Australia made 394. South Africa were 184 for seven. And you win the test match. And you put on 180 for the ninth wicket with J.P. Bimini. I mean, uh, it's just, it, you, you can't make that stuff up. Yeah, it's been it's been years, and it seems like it's still something that a lot of people take a lot of joy out of. And a lot of people tell me that 
they turned the TV on and they saw us at 180 for seven. And then they were like, oh, no, we, we won the first one. We're going to lose the second. And then hopefully we can win the third, you know. And they turned the TV off. And then they turned the TV back on. And then we were 300 and, or 400 for seven. And they were like, <laughs> oh, South Africa, bat. they had to bat a second time, you know. And it's like, oh, no, we're actually still batting. Like, it's still the first innings. So, um, yeah, uh, you know, just a, a great test match. What, what, had, um, what are the memories that make you, make you laugh? Because, I mean, Bouch tells me he, um, so, so seven down, he, um, he starts taping his fingers to get ready to go out and keep. And, and he had his fingers taped for about a day and a half. And, yeah. and Jacques used to love being in his shorts for as long as possible, didn't he? He put his whites yeah. on. So he had his whites on for a day and a half. I mean, there must have been times where you and you and you and JP batted through almost a day. There must have been times like at tea when you walked off and you were still together. You you probably just laughed at each other, didn't you? We were. I mean, we were just um, when whenever we got to when when we batted for a session, like for an hour, I was blown away. Like I was like, wow, we just batted for an hour together. You know, I don't know if we scored many runs in that hour, maybe thirty or forty runs or whatever it was. And then he, I'd stand there and I said to him, I've never batted for an hour in a test match. And, he, and we would just laugh, you know, and we would just laugh and we'd get our drink and really enjoy like that, the atmosphere and, and the, the space of the MCG because it's just sort of, it's one of my favorite places to play cricket. It's a massive coliseum, packed house, 120,000 people or whatever it was. And you just stand there and you just look around and you just, you, you feel like you're a gladiator, you know. And then we would bat and we'd bat for another hour and then we'd have another drinks break or it would be tea or lunch or whatever it is. And we'd be walking off the field and we'd just look at each other and we're like, what just happened? Like, how did that even happen? You know, like give each other like a, a fist of the gloves and then we would go into lunch. And walking into the dressing room the first time, everyone was very excited, clapping, well done, well done, boys. And then the superstition started to click in. Guys are not allowed to move, the, move in their seats. When we batted for another hour and we walked in the tea, it was like dead quiet. It was like guys would come over and they'd like pat you on the back. They're like, well done, guys. Uh, just keep going. Because now they didn't want to break this voodoo that had just like kind of like come into the, into the game. And then get up in absolute silence with JP and walk back out into the Coliseum and then just carry on, you know. Um, but then when JP got his 100, then you, you just saw everyone down like on the fence they were all going wild. I still have visions of it, like whenever Supersport play it on TV. And then when you look again, they were gone. Poof, they were gone. They were back into the dressing room, wherever they were, like sitting on their same seats or something like that. So, you know, those always make, those things make me laugh. The joy of the unfamiliar is, is never better illustrated by the fact that you're 76 in that, in that innings. It completely overshadows the fact that you actually took 10 wickets to win the test match. <laughs> it's ridiculous, isn't it? Oh, yeah. I've been asked many times before, would I rather have taken 10 in a game or would I rather have scored 100? And I, I can guarantee you I've taken 10 wickets in many games before, but I would have loved to have scored 100. <laughs> and uh, Andrew Simons was actually bowling and he was, he was throwing, he was like looping these like little soft offies up to me, um, trying to entice me to, you know, go for a big shot and try and hit him out of the ground and get caught somewhere. And I can remember just leaning forward and just blocking and thinking to myself, not today. It's not, I'm not falling for that trick. I'm not letting my bowler brain take over. And I just blocked. And when I got out, I thought, I was four hits away from 100. And I'm like, 
I could back myself to hit that guy for four sixes. <laughs> what was I doing? Why was I blocking it? But yeah, like, uh, you know, great, like, knock with JP. But yeah, I mean, my main job was to take wickets. And I was lucky that I got 10 in that game. I come back to your batting. Uh, and this wasn't too long ago, actually. But you're playing a one-day international against Zimbabwe in Bloemfontein. And you walk out with South Africa at 101 for seven. I mean, that's, that's deep trouble. That was against Zimbabwe. And, um, and you end up winning the game by 120 runs. You made 60. But you, you could have done more, more consistently with the bat if you'd taken it. I don't know, if you'd thought like a batsman, do you think? Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, like in, in school, I, I, I did both. I batted and I bowled. Um, and funny enough, when I finished uh, high school and I went into my first academy year, I had a bad hamstring injury. So for the, for the most, for the better half of the, the year, I wasn't bowling and I was batting. So I, I opened the batting because it just seemed like I wanted to be involved. And I ended up getting batsman of the year in that academy year um, in 2002 and didn't bowl much. <laughs> <laughs> but then once I'd gone over to the Titans, um, you know, I put all my effort into bowling. I wanted to play for the Titans and I wanted to play for South Africa. And I felt like if there was a, there was a chance for me to get into these teams, I needed to put 100% of that effort into, into bowling. That's how I was going to make these teams. And then once I started playing for South Africa more regularly and working with guys like uh, Duncan Fletcher, having some of the best batters in the world with Callis, Hash uh, and A.B., uh, just spending some time with them, the batting slowly started to improve. Um, and at one stage, I was even South Africa's night watchman for probably two or three years. Because that knock in 2008, I was batting behind Paul Harris and Mornay Morkel, which is probably the worst. I don't know how that ever happened. Like that's <laughs> So, yeah, you know, so that knock against Zimbabwe, I even said it in the, in the press conference afterwards that I... I'd been playing for almost 13 or 14 years of international cricket. I, I can't believe that I had to wait that long to score my first one-day 50. Edged. There it is. South Africa have won. They've won this match. They've won the series. And they go to the top of the world rankings. 2012 then, Dale. Um, you go back to England. Um, and the first test at, at the Oval is an absolute epic. It'll always be remembered for Jacques Callis and Hashimamla batting for what three and a half days or whatever it was. But um, but but England, but they batted first, and and they're two hundred and seventy for three overnight or after the first day, and it's looking it's looking pretty bleak on a on a on a flat pitch. But you know you you, you bounce back the next day, bowled them out sometime after lunch. South Africa make 637 for two. <laughs> As you said, Hashim Amla's uh, 311 not out. But 637 for two. That's the longest you ever had off, isn't it, in a test match? Well, I was, I was night watchman in that game. And, I mean, I was, again, I was myself because I'm a tailender. So anytime I have to go in and bat, I'm always going to be, you know, a little bit worried and everything like that. I was night, night watchman. I had to pad up four times or something to go and bat. <laughs> And I never batted. So <laughs> I padded up more than AB and some of the other guys in that test match. And I never batted. But, I mean, those guys were amazing, you know. Uh, and after the day one, we were staring down um, the barrel a little bit. And 
had spoken about it overnight. Uh, Gary had, had pulled the guys in um, and he said, not to worry, guys. You know, we just need to look at where we went wrong. And we felt that our bowling is probably a bit wide. We didn't attack the stumps enough. And then the next morning, straight away, we just tightened up the line a little bit. Uh, we probably bowled three or four overs where there wasn't any runs. And then I got Alistair Cook to drag one on. Bowling inside edge. Great bowling. Great plans from South Africa. When he went for one that was slightly wider, he, wasn't, he didn't take full advantage. Dragged it onto the poles. And then we just started a, a flurry where we were able to bowl them out and then bat and bat big. He won by an innings and, and 12 runs. But that, I mean, that sounds like a thrashing. But... But there was only an hour to go, as I recall. Um, I mean, it was deep into the fifth day. You took five, and I remember you turning around to—I don't know whether it was somebody in the press box or some or somebody in a commentary box. All gone. The last over, Swan drove on in the air, but to the cover boundary. This time, he's found the man, and that is five for Dale Stay. You were quite animated, you know. You held up the big fifer, and, and you were. It looked like, were you, were you, did you have a point to prove to somebody? I can't remember. I mean, I'm, I know that I was, I was probably going in the direction of somebody that had written or said something about me. Um, I, I can't remember. I mean, you know what it is? Sometimes the English press can be quite hard. Um, mm. Anybody that's ever played any sport in England or anything will know that. Um, and it's all part of it, really. It's all part of uh, sometimes getting the best out of players and sometimes just seeing whether they can actually handle it, handle it or not. And I remember just taking five and something in me just said, it was one of the very few times that I've actually turned towards like, uh, like the press or somebody or something like that and, and almost shown them off in a, in a way. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I, was, I was quite excited that I was able to. And, and I think it may have been because playing against England was, it was probably my bogey team. I just never, I never did as well against England as I would like to have done. Um, versus maybe all the other teams. Um, I think if you look at, I'm not a big stats person, but it was pointed out to me that my stats against England were probably nowhere near as good as what it was against other teams. So that may have like been a spark where I was like, well, I can play against these guys. Yeah, <laughs> your a, your test wickets cost thirty against England, and um, that's a little higher than uh, it's a little higher than your 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 career average, but. It's not. It doesn't suggest that you got spanked all around the ground. <laughs> However, one time you did get spanked was in the next Test match. So you, you win the first Test in 2012 at the Oval. The second one's at Headingley, where Kevin Peterson rates that hundred, his hundred, and particularly the way he played you as one of uh, one of the best moments in his career. Oh my goodness me! I cannot tell you how good a bowler Stain is. And that's as dismissive, even more violently dismissive, than the last shot he hit to the boundary. I mean, he just played him as if he was a little off-spinner. Yeah, no, he was, I mean, it was next level. It was like he was batting to prove a point, and I'm almost certain he was <laughs> trying to prove some point. And, um, I mean, KP plays with a lot of, without a lot of fear. He he's really plays as fearless kind of cricket. Um, and I think in that test match, there'd been a lot happening so yeah, there was there there was there was that sense that he probably was sitting there thinking to himself, "Well, I'm just going to take it to these guys." Um, and when you've got the amount of talent that somebody like KP has got, uh, and and the strong mindset that he's got, he can he can really do anything. And then it was the ball was hooping around, it was swinging around a little bit. And even Graham came to me with a second new ball, and he was like, 
okay, cool, bud. Listen, I want you to go through about four or five overs. Yeah, let's try and knock over one or two poles. I, I really need you to strike. And I think I bowled the second ball with that new ball and KP ran at me and just smashed me over my head for six. I bowled two overs, went for 20, maybe 22 or 23. And he came to me and said, okay, cool. I'm going to bring the spinner on. <laughs> I'm sorry, you're out of the attack. And I was like, that's fine. <laughs> this guy is playing me like I'm, like I'm no one. So yeah, one of the better knocks that I've seen him play. He was amazing. So you draw the test match. You go to Lords for the third and final test match with the world number one ranking at stake. That was a, that was a terrific test match, wasn't it? Um, and uh, really close in the end. Um, well, you won by 54 runs, but it, you know, it, was, it felt closer than that. And, and you became world number one. And there was, it was tinged with sadness, wasn't it? Because Bout, Mark Boucher was sitting at home with, with only one eye at that stage. Yeah, well, we had the best build-up to a test series that I've ever had. We went to Switzerland with um, uh, Mike Horn. Paddy Upton and Gary Kirsten had masterminded this pre-series kind of uh, trip for the boys. Um, and when asked, are you taking your cricket kit with? And we were like, no. And it was like, are you going to be doing any bowling? No. Are you going to be doing any batting there? No. What are you doing in Switzerland? You know, like, you, are you going on holiday to Switzerland? And it was like, no, we're not going on holiday to Switzerland. But we went to Switzerland without any cricket kit. And um, we went and we, we went on this, on this kind of mental toughness couple of days with Mike Horn. And I remember the leader of that whole, whole kind of thing was Bouch. He, he really wanted to prove a point. And he was, he was in the front when we went for these runs. He was in the front row when we had these talks. He was right in there, right next to Mike, um, listening. And he, he was super, like, amped for that series, you know, and especially later that year going to Australia. So he was really pumped for that. Uh, and then in a, in, a, in a warm-up match to lose his eye was just like, you know, it, it was kind of maybe exactly what needed to happen for him to prepare for that losing his eye, you know, had he, had he not gone to Switzerland, I don't know if he would have dealt with losing his eye any better. So it was probably a good thing that we went to Switzerland for for his sake, but yeah, you know, not to get sidetracked, but that, that game was, um, was amazing to go and win the game. And uh, some of the better memories are of Graham and Jock, running around lords and writing on their shirts you know this one's for you Bouch. Uh, it just felt like that series we were we were playing for him throughout that whole series so it was it was it was really important still to come on this week's cricket collective hear why dale stain is looking forward to finishing his cricketing career i think that there's so much more that i've missed out on in terms of life whilst i was playing cricket i've been to india 26 times and I've never been to the Taj Mahal. You're listening to the Cricket Collective on Talksport 2. Tack, you've had three spells in county cricket, beginning with uh, with Essex when you were a very young man, and more recently with Hampshire, Warwickshire in between. 
Um, what, what do you what do you make of of county cricket? Is it as relentless as as people say? You know, I've always loved playing county cricket, and it doesn't really matter which team you play for. I can't pick a favourite team. They all had their played a part in my career as I was going. When I first played for Essex, I was very, very young, knew nothing about cricket. I had played a handful of international cricket and I was kind of just figuring out what touring life was like. It was one of the first times I'd been to England. The next time when I went to Warwickshire, I was a little bit more of a finished kind of article of a player. I, I had some, some cricket behind me and I was able to be one of the more leaders in that Warwickshire attack. And by the time I hit Hampshire, you know, I was a full-time professional, been doing this for 15 years kind of player. And um, everyone around that team, they've seen players come and go. They've had some of the best at Hampshire, from Shane Warne to you know, Neil McKenzie to Gordon Grinch, Barry Richards. So they've, they've, they've seen the pros come, you know. And for me, at that point, was just to come in and, and blend in with them, you know, and, and, and figure out what they wanted to do how they want to run their cricket, and I've just got to kind of blend in. So I've, I've always enjoyed playing county cricket. They look after you so well. They, they love, eat, sleep, drink cricket. If you're a young cricketer and you can get over, I mean, I would, I would definitely recommend it. I remember asking Hashim Amla a few years ago whether he regarded himself as a role model for um, not just young South African, Asian, Indians, um, but, you know, a, a, just a a role model for, for young cricketers. And he said, cricketers are role models. You have no choice. Your only choice is whether you're a good role model or a bad role model. Um, and it's, it's this kind of responsibility that's thrust upon you. Sometimes I, I suppose it must be inconvenient rather than something that you resent because you're, you're a free spirited guy. I think sometimes you can't, you can't control what people think of you or how people react to what you do. Um, so it's what I've learned in in the last 15 years or whatever is not to get too caught up on the the smaller things. And I see young players these days, you know, they'll come into the dressing room. And they're like, oh, this one guy was abusing me on Twitter. And I'm like, well, what about the 80,000 other people that are saying the great things about you? You know, you're going to really worry about that one person, you know. And it takes a couple of years to kind of get to that point. But you know, through through social media, I think the one thing that like I've certainly tried to do is just to kind of bridge the gap between what people think you are when they watch you on a cricket field to who you really are and then give them a, give them an opportunity to kind of make up their minds, whether they actually, who they want to support, you know, whether they want to support the cricketer that they watch or whether they want to support the person that they start to get to know on a more personal level. But you, there's one thing that's, that, that you, that Hash is right about is that you you can't get away from it. It doesn't matter where you go, you have that responsibility, you know, um, of being a role model. So even in lockdown now, it doesn't matter what I do. <laughs> you got to do the right thing, otherwise someone's gonna have a go at you, you know. But it's fine. I've gotten so used to it now, so it's okay. We're coming towards the end of the program, but I must ask you about the IPL. I know, I know, I know you've loved it. Um, the chaos. Uh, is, is something that you seem to embrace, whereas other people can get frustrated by, by, the, by the chaos of, of India. That, that's something that you appear to find a positive energy in. Is that, is that right? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, I don't know. I've always kind of haven't really let that part uh, of my life 
affect me too much. I always, I've always kind of felt like I'm on the same level as everybody else. Although I can, I play cricket at the highest level, you know, I'm still only human. I'm just like anybody else, you know? So, and I, I try not to let the, the craziness of the crowd all cheering for you, like get to ahead of above myself really. But, um, I do enjoy going there. There's there's no better feeling than playing in front of, you know, 80,000 people at Wankiri or at RCB, you know. Uh, it's just it's just amazing. It, it can get the best out of you when you've got the ball in your hand. It just gets the energy going and those competitive juices really flying. You've had a long and successful and obviously lucrative career as well. Um, and... I know that uh, I asked you once before, what, do you have any um, indulgences? Um, and, and, and I think the biggest indulgence is that you, you bought your mother a new house and your father a new Harley Davidson. For you, it just seems to be, <laughs> seems to be about, you know, having a nice surfboard and, and, and playing with your dogs. I mean, do you, do you have any sort of indulgences? Do you treat yourself? So I love, uh, I love going on surfing trips and fishing trips. Uh, the, the further, it seems like the further and deeper and more hidden away that you try and go on these trips, the more expensive they actually are, you know, going to, going to Bolivia in the middle of the Amazon jungle or trying to get away to some, um, sneaky Island off Indonesia to go like surfing. Uh, you would think it should be cheap, but they, but they prove to be quite expensive. So that's kind of where I've kind of been spending my money but that's fine you know like i would rather like die having those having lived those experiences than putting money into some stupid thing like a car or something silly like that you know um (laughs) i don't want to get too existential just to finish off with but um you've achieved so much as a cricketer i just get the sense that that you actually think that life is just beginning oh absolutely i i'm I'm very excited about cricket coming to an end, actually. Um, I, I think that there's so much more that I've missed out on in terms of life whilst I was playing cricket. And that was my period. You know, I, I played cricket and I'm still playing right now, but there's so much more to see and so much more to do. I, I've been to India 26 times and I've never been to the Taj Mahal. <laughs> I've had friends that have come over to India to come and watch me play cricket and, and they've done more in India than I've done in the 26 times that I've been there. And I've, I spend a minimum of like three to four weeks every time I go, you know, and I've been to Australia, but I've never been to the Great Barrier Reef. You know, it's these kinds of things that you really, that I really want to experience. And I I think I've ticked the cricket box, but there's these other things that I kind of want to really do right now. And and if I can blend them with my cricket whilst I'm still, whilst I'm still playing, even better, you know, that would be, that would be even better. So I'm, I'm trying to do that right now. Like I'm trying to get the most out of my cricket, but the most out of my experiences when I'm, when I'm out and about and everything like that. But I know once cricket finishes, I'll have more time to kind of do that stuff, take friends and family along so that they can experience those, those things with me, rather than me coming around the fire pit and telling them these stories of where I've been and what I've experienced. I'd rather have us sit there and talk about something that we've all done together. That, that would be pretty, that would be pretty cool. Dale Stein, thank you so much indeed for your time. Um, I hope you get uh, onto the beach soon. And uh, you, you presumably have managed to maintain your fitness while, while you've been locked down. Have you got a little gym at home, have you? Manners, um, you won't believe it, but on day three of lockdown, I was sweeping the house, doing domestic work, something I haven't done since I was in 
boarding school and <laughs> I seem to have hurt my lower back, like slipped a disc or something in my lower back. And I haven't been able to do any kind of um, strength and conditioning <laughs> work in the last three weeks. But yeah, I, to be honest with you, I've done, I've done nothing. <laughs> so, so. Enjoy the, uh, the rest of lockdown. And once again, thank you so much for your time. Really, really appreciate oh, it. No, it's a pleasure. My thanks to Dale Stain for the last hour as we recall some of the highs and lows of his illustrious career. If you missed any of the show or wish to catch up, then download the following on podcast from Apple Podcasts, Acast or Spotify. And thanks for listening. The following on podcast is proudly sponsored by Barbados Tourism. And this is your gentle reminder that Barbados is the best place to be a cricket fan. With eight matches from the ICC Men's T20 Cricket World Cup Series taking place in Barbados this summer, including the final, you can experience the summer of a lifetime by booking today. Aside from immersing in world-class cricket in the sunshine, Barbados is the dream destination for all travel enthusiasts. It is where adventure meets paradise, the culinary capital of the Caribbean, and better still, the birthplace of rum. If you are keen to unite with cricket fans across the globe for what is set to be an unforgettable summer, then head to visitbarbados.org forward slash cricket today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 